1: A whole bunch of people wrote pet tributes in response to our call out. We're offering to publish them free for anybody that got them to us by five o'clock Friday. We got well over a hundred. They'll be rolling out on cleveland.com for a few weeks and they'll be in the plain dealer eventually. Some of them, not all of them can't publish that many. They're long. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. Laura, if you were so inclined, would you write a pet tribute?
2: You know, it's funny. Today is the two-year gotcha day for my, um, my dog, Rory, which makes me think of our dog who passed away beforehand. And I think... I think I would write a tribute. I didn't, but um yeah, those memories are always with you even though it's been a couple of years and um my yeah, Dewey was a great dog and loved the water. It was, it was the most fun to like watch him, you know, swim out and get a stick.
1: We had people writing tributes from their pets from I think the 60s. I mean, most of them were in the last 10 years or so and many of them were pretty recent. But there were people for whom these memories mattered decades later. So be interesting to see how well-read they are. This was an experiment to see how many people would write them, how many people would read them. We will start a paid service starting in June. Let's begin. How many laws restricting or discouraging abortion have has Opio passed in the years since Roe v. Wade? recognized a constitutional right of women to have abortions, something that Justice Sam Alito and four of his fellow justices seem intent on taking away. Lisa, it's going to be far more restrictive post this ruling than it was before the ruling came about
3: but since 1986 here in Ohio 39 bills or budget amendments were introduced in in ways to try and restrict abortion rights for Ohio women it was slow at first but then it started to speed up after 2011 when uh, Republican governor John Kasich was elected and also you got new maps in 2010 that kind of diluted the Democratic districts so the very first First one here in Ohio was House Bill 319. No abortions uh, could be performed on unmarried or unemancipated minors without notifying their parents. This was upheld in 1990 in an Akron uh, case. 1992 introduced the 24-hour waiting period. 1995, Ohio was the first state to ban the D&E form of abortion. Uh, In 1998, state employee health plan taxes could no longer be used to cover abortions. And then in 2002, clinics were ordered to have ambulatory surgery license. And this was a big deal because it closed many clinics across Ohio.
0: Right.
1: Yeah.
3: And then starting in 2003, This is when they started to take money away from Planned Parenthood. There was a budget amendment that year that said that Ohio Department of Health funds can't be used for abortions or counseling. Planned Parenthood was cut off from funding then. Then in uh, 2013, a budget amendment took away money. It was sent to TANF instead. And then 2016 removed all remaining funding to Planned Parenthood. So you can see kind of a progression here. Now let's jump to uh, 2022. We have, there are so many bills that are so so important, it's hard to pick the ones that I should talk about. But uh, starting in uh, 2022, we have several bills that haven't been passed yet. Senate Bill 123 and House Bill 598 are trigger laws that will ban all abortions except to save the mother's life. There's been no hearing on these bills since October, but they're expected to have a new hearing soon. There's also House Bill 378 that said that doctors prescribing medication for abortions must provide info on how it can be stopped, also called abortion reversal.
1: Yeah, they're 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 really intent on stamping it out. What's interesting, I went back, I was looking in the uh, archives from the 60s, and in 1969 there was a big push in the Ohio legislature to reform the state's abortion law, which kind of prohibited it, but it was so poorly written that abortions were happening in Ohio. And ultimately, they decided to let the Supreme Court or the courts make the ruling. They couldn't come to agreement. But what was clear is it was much less restrictive before Roe v. Wade than it will be after they throw it out, if they follow through on that, there of course, people gathered by the thousands across the country this weekend to protest the removal of the right of women to have an abortion, something they've counted on for more than 50 years.
3: Yeah, and it's a shame that Ohio—not all states have trigger laws. I think there's like half of the states, like 23 states, have triggered laws that immediately go into effect if Roe v. Wade is overturned, and Ohio is among them, unfortunately.
1: What's amazing is that these five justices are going to come out, according to this draft ruling, and say there is no constitutional right to a one, to have an abortion, even though for more than 50 years the Supreme Court has recognized that specific right. So these justices, in in spite of overwhelming public opinion and a whole lot of their predecessors, are going to take it away. It's a it's a stunning change of big moment in America where the Supreme Court is going to reverse a precedent to restrict rights, not to expand rights. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What has happened to Digital C once viewed as Cleveland's beacon for getting cheap broadband into the hands of many? Layla, it's not working out that way. Yeah,
0: Digital C, which was once known as as One Cleveland and later became One Community, you know, for a long time, they had this track record of delivering high-speed internet to Northeast Ohio. In 2012, they had connected to the internet 2,300 schools and libraries and hospitals. And, you know, as one community, they managed a $100 million project to expand Northeast Ohio's broadband network. And in 2015, they installed what at the time was known as the nation's fastest commercial internet service to to Cleveland's health tech corridor. or and that year that's the year that they rebranded as Digital C and they set this ambitious goal to connect 40,000 predominantly low-income families with high-speed internet by 2024 which is which is coming up <laughs> but today Despite, you know, tens of millions in private donations and and the fact that they have lower prices than almost any commercial internet provider and tons of federal stimulus money earmarked for broadband. And digital C's ambitions have really, Really slowed to a crawl. They recently were outbid by PCS for people on the county's 19.4 million dollar American Rescue Plan Act-funded uh, project to provide broadband to to Cuyahoga County, and and that's really going to push back their goal for that hitting that 40,000 household mark in the next few years because they haven't been hitting their numbers. So. So what gives, you know, they blame the pandemic like like everyone does, but you know, their competitors also were dealing with the pandemic and they seem to be doing okay. So stimulus watch reporter Lucas DePrilli dug in a little deeper and, and he found that leadership change within that organization, uh supply chain issues, increased competition with and and then a pretty big miscalculation in government bureaucracy on digital C's part, all can you know contributed to uh to the to the moment that they're in right now uh it's a really good story that we had been waiting for really because we've all been scratching our heads wondering what happened to this this uh nonprofit that had such promise
1: well and it came up in the mayor's race last year because council quickly put together its bogus expansion of broadband and said it would be through digital c and we'd call digital c and they'd say yeah well Nobody's talking to us yeah. yet. Nobody's talking to us yet. It was it, it was just a strange situation. In the end, it sounds like they just kind of lacked imagination. I mean, they could have been the forefront of this and they just have not grabbed the opportunity.
0: yeah, you know what I found really m- very intriguing about about Lucas's story was the part about leadership because you know, digital C was founded by by Dorothy Bonick and Lev Gonick They came to Cleveland in oh one. And, uh, you know, today, however, it's, it's being run by Sharon Sobel Jordan, who was once County Executive Armin Budish's chief of staff. And from 2006 to 14, she led the Centers for Families and Children, not a tech company. And in 2018, she had left the Budish administration to lead Project Unify. And, uh, you know, that, you know, that was later rebranded as Unify Labs. And Unify Labs is really a mysterious tech company that we still don't really know what they do they call themselves a nonprofit tech innovation center they once said that their mission was to use big data to reduce poverty and so far all it appears that they have done is create an app that was designed to help make hiring you know employees easier and more equitable but that app has barely been downloaded and has almost no users so now she's gone on to, to to digital c and um, it's it's unclear what kind of tech background she really has, and so so in her hands is she go, is this going to become the you know the the uh, you know the great hope that Cleveland really needs it to be? I, I don't know. I that, that was the part of the story that I was like, wow, uh, that's a, that, it was a good find on Lucas's part to to go deep into the background of its new leader.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, in Project Unify. You remember they put together this powerhouse board, Acrobutras and all these people, and they were going to solve poverty through big That's data. Right. They made a they made a big presentation to me about how this was going to work, and they were studying all these attributes. But it really never did anything. Remember, they were going to share offices with United Way. United Way was partnering with them, and all of a sudden, you know, they got an app with forty four downloads, and their their top person has moved right. on to another lackluster nonprofit that just doesn't seem to be. Hitting its stride. So you're right. It'll be interesting to see. But at least broadband is coming to some of Cleveland and East Cleveland's poorer areas, just not through them. Good stuff. Check it out on cleveland.com. Why won't the marijuana legalization question be on the ballot in November? Laura, we talked about it last week. We thought there'd be some fight. But it turns out that people pushing this had some vulnerabilities in their argument, and they settled it.
2: They did. And so the group advocating this reached an agreement with the Republicans in charge. The group is called the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol. They had sued the state because They said, you need to take these and we need to get this on the ballot. But the problem was they actually missed the deadline. So they've come to an agreement that will delay this legalization campaign until 2023. And in exchange, the state officials will accept their 140,000 signature without making them start over from scratch. So that could have potentially happened. Obviously, it's hard to collect signatures. What happened is the group is using this mechanism called initiated statute. And that's how members of the public can propose new laws. Under this, the public can force lawmakers to take up proposed a law if they gather the needed number of signatures from registered voters in at least four, 44 counties across the state. Obviously, that's half the counties. They needed 132,887. They fell short by 13,000 signatures in the initial batch. They had a little bit of time, 10 days, to get the rest of them, but they missed that deadline. So that's really where their vulnerability lies.
1: I wonder, too, even though they're settling to start the process next year, to put it on the ballot, if what's really going on is the legislature will pass this next year. They don't want to pass it this year. It's an election year. So get past the election, get into January. Because that's what these people want to begin with. They don't want it on the ballot. They just want Ohio to legalize it. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if this is the beginning of of a negotiation. I don't know. I don't
2: think there's a whole lot of appetite for the Republicans to pass this law themselves. I think This is a smart move on the Republicans' part because they do not want this on the ballot in this November because, I mean, it's a big election. They have the governor on the ballot. They have the Senate. And they don't want to bring out all of these pro-marijuana people who might tend to be Democrats. They could be libertarians too, but it would definitely change the tenor of the election and probably drive a whole lot more voters to the polls who might not see things their way.
1: Yeah, what, what I'm getting at, though, is... They'd rather pass something themselves than leave it to the voters. Well, that's true. To do that's it, what like they did they the did last with medical time. Medical So I suspect they're having conversations in the background to talk about how it might go. I don't know. We don't. I don't have any evidence of it. It just this was a quickly settled deal after they filed the lawsuit, and I wonder if there's some peace branches going back and forth. It's today it's in a, Ohio. It's time
2: to figure it out now.
1: Before the primary election earlier this month, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine seemed to refuse to discuss the idea of getting the free federal dollars for expanding Amtrak service, giving Cleveland a regular connection in and out of state. Now, he no longer faces competitors who would chide him from taking money from a Democratic administration. Lisa, is he suddenly interested? Oh, what a difference a
3: month makes. (laughs) There was a statement issued from the governor's office late last week asking the Ohio Rail Development Commission, which is part of ODOT, to collaborate with Amtrak on cost and feasibility of what's called the 3C&D line, which goes from Cleveland to Columbus to Cincinnati and Daytona. Dayton. This comes a year after Amtrak announced major expansion plans across its network, including a major expansion in Ohio. Amtrak was saying that Ohio was among the most underserved states for passenger rail, and they had plans to, to fix that. Stu Nicholson, who's uh, the director of All Aboard Ohio, a passenger rail advocacy group, says he's Cautiously optimistic. But, you know, just a, like a month ago, and we opined on this uh, in our editorial board roundtable last month that, you know, this is free money from the infrastructure bill. $66 billion is being offered for rail expansion. All states have to do is ask for it. So it looks like wine is now considering doing that. So we'll see what happens. But we have to remember, back in 2010, G- G- Governor John Kasich refused $400 million in, in money to expand Amtrak service to the three Cs, Columbus, Cincinnati, and uh, Cleveland. So, yeah, I... This We'll see what happens. But Ohio must first demonstrate an expression of interest in this money to the Federal Railroad Administration, and then the administration will seek proposals after that. So we need to get in line and take that money.
1: It was odd how silent he was, because this was roundly applauded across the state. Lots of people wanted to do it. It would have been good for investment. It would have been good for transportation. And he just was silent. And all of a sudden now the primary is over and, and Jim Renese wouldn't be saying, look at Mike DeWine taking money from Joe Biden, saddling us with debt. He doesn't have that now. The the Democratic candidate's not going to complain about having extra rail. So all of a sudden, Mike DeWine says, yeah, I'm interested in that. I don't think the timing is a coincidence. No,
3: and there's there the change now, though, with this new money is that there's less buy-in from states back when Kasich refused that money that the states had to take on a bigger chunk of of the cost but in this iteration they won't pay the states will not pay operational costs for the first five years to prove that the lines are viable
1: a whole lot of people have their hopes in this coming so we'll have to see if we get the money or if even we get in line it's today in ohio What is Cleveland Mayor Justin's Bibb list of priorities for spending some of the city's big windfall in the federal American Rescue Plan dollars? Layla, we're talking a lot of stimulus today. This is the second in a series of stories. What did Bibb come out with? And actually, one reader came out and said, this doesn't read like a priority list. It reads like a laundry list. (laughs)
0: Right, right. His priorities include a lot of the things that we we might have guessed based on his campaign promises and, and all the breadcrumbs he left us in his State of the City speech. It's affordable housing, violence prevention, internet access, education for all ages, lead removal. He also includes arts and neighborhood amenities, parks, recreation, cultural offerings, and of course, efforts to modernize and bring transparency to City Hall through technology upgrades and other investments, and filling holes in the city budget caused by revenue loss to the pandemic, uh, you know, their fa- the effect on the economy. So, yeah, th- and there weren't a lot of specifics. It's really just sort of those broad, broad categories. Then there's this thing called a civic participation fund, which was described in the press release like this. Cleveland's 17 wards can identify important neighborhood projects and advocate for change at the hyper-local level in partnership with city council. It's really unclear if that's related to participatory budgeting, which is that concept that Bibb really supported in the past, which, you know, where residents would have a direct say in how to spend the money, or is it like the Kaiga County slush funds <laughs> you know it, it's that's so vague the way that's described and it could go either way and we tried to get answers but they were not available to take our questions when this came out on Friday night so
1: well, if he doesn't, I mean, look, it's it's one thing to say, residents, tell us what you need in your neighborhoods, and I'll work with city council to put that money out there. It's another thing to say, hey, each councilman gets X number of millions, go spend it as you want, which the county is going 100% slush fund. It seems like they may be doing something a little more wise, yeah. it, it's, because not every neighborhood has the same needs. Right. Some neighborhoods might need expensive projects. Some might need... Little projects and to spread it out evenly does it's just a bad idea as the city has proven over and over right. again with road paving and things. But this, I'm going to be optimistic and think this is more of the participatory budgeting.
0: It than does sound the slush that way. Funds. It does. So I'll I'll be optimistic too. Interestingly, <laughs> <laughs> Bibb, um, you know, Bib is using what he had earlier called the Center for Economic Recovery to help him evaluate and score proposals and this group is supposed to include outside thinkers and experts but that concept of including outsiders seems to have vanished from his description of it online and now it only includes city hall staff and cabinet members and they they didn't pick up the phone when we tried to follow up with questions on Friday so we don't know why it no longer includes those outsiders, but we suspect that probably it's perhaps the concept didn't fly with city council and of course that needs city council approval. So it looks like it's just gonna be insiders and his cabinet that will be guiding this instead of those those, you know, financial minds helping him and all those other experts. Uh I don't know.
1: I don't know. I, he and Blaine Griffin do seem to be collaborating in a good way. So let, well, let's wait and see. I mean, I, I give, give him the benefit of the doubt. At least he didn't come out and say, "I'm giving out you know six million dollars to each council person to go squander when True. Cleveland is in dire need of money." So we'll I do see. just it's,
0: in case anyone's uh, listening from City Hall right now. When you drop a press release on a late on a Friday, make yourself available for questions. <laughs> We had so many questions and nobody was available to answer them. Our, our, you know, I felt like our story when I when we were publishing it, it was like, why are we even publishing this? We have it looks like we don't know anything about it. <laughs> so it if especially if transparency is one of your priorities that you are listing here, uh, increased city hall transparency. Don't list a press contact press contact on your press release and then not m- make them available.
1: <laughs> okay. I'm
0: sorry, I, I'm, right. if you, I am so salty about that.
1: <laughs> All right, you're listening to Today in Ohio. How does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine want to use a big? Ch- A big chunk of federal stimulus dollars to help some Hawaiians who suffer from mental health and addiction issues. Laura, I bring up the timing of this again. I have a feeling that if he had brought this up during the primary, Jim Renese would have jumped all over him. This is a good way to spend money. This is a big Ohio problem, and I credit the governor for coming out with an innovative approach.
2: Yeah, we're talking about $85 million in in ARPA money, and this would go to helping deal with mental health and to help people get trained to be providers for it. Because this stat that he shared on Friday was incredible to me, that the demand for behavioral health care services increased 353% between 2013 and 2019. That was before the pandemic made it Seem like everybody had mental health needs so suicide is one of the top 10 causes for death for ohioans ages 10 to 64. that's massive and nearly 2.4 million ohioans live in areas with a shortage of behavioral health professionals so that's nearly a quarter of the state and this would really help provide scholarships and help for kids and adults who want to be trained to be those kind of specialists
1: I think this is brilliant. I mean, one, it lives up to his promise of helping children because mm-hmm. anybody with a child who's tried to get some mental health counseling or help for the kid knows that it's a long, long wait. They basically say, yeah, we'll see you in months. So, so that's good. Two, it's an employment thing. He's trying to, to get people trained for jobs that are in high demand. I, it's just, he's listening. This is a sign, I think, that the governor does have a bit of his finger on the pulse of what's happening in this state and is trying to solve what has become one of the worst problems of the pandemic.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And he says that $85 million is only meant to provide short-term help, but you have to think this is a longer-term goal because you're not just like throwing money at the problem right now you're training thousands of students up to 4,000 students would benefit from this they'd receive about $10,000 during their studies and then an additional $5,000 during early years working in a behavioral health job and we all know that student loans can be absolutely um just drag someone down for years after they finish college so maybe more people will look at behavioral health as a viable career option because it won't be so expensive to get trained and they know there's such a need I'm sure anybody with a degree right now could get hired in a heartbeat so and what you said about kids it's not just obviously yes this will help kids get providers but think of all the parents who are struggling who are probably not their best selves I mean I think this will help all families across Ohio
1: Well, this is even bigger than that. We talk all the time about how government leaders are showing zero imagination in using the one-time stimulus dollars for transformative projects, right? That's Mm -hmm. what Stimulus Watch is about, and you're not seeing it. You're seeing people come up with a bunch of pedestrian ideas. This is the kind of transformative idea that we've been hoping to see. We finally have one. It's the one. So it's a a big deal. I wish other government leaders would sit back, identify crushing problems, and come up with innovative ways to use this money to solve them.
2: Yeah, no, I I applaud him for this. You still has to get approved um, because it's eighty five million from the two hundred twelve million available for the Medicaid's Home and Community Based Services Workforce Development Strategic Fund. So there's more bureaucracy to go. But you got to think that if this is successful, it could be expanded and serve as a model for elsewhere.
1: Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Historic preservationists are besides themselves, but you have to credit the Cleveland Clinic for continuing to invest in the city. What's the grand plan for the Cleveland Playhouse complex that the Clinic a few years back. Lisa, it's a big development.
3: It is. The uh, circa 1926 Cleveland Playhouse at East 85th and Euclid will be raised to make way for a new $1 million square foot neurological institute. The Cleveland Clinic bought this uh, building in 2009 when the theater company moved downtown. And this building also includes a 1983 expansion that was designed by renowned uh, architect Philip Johnston of the Cleveland area. But it—it it, it, honestly, when they bought it, you had to know that the, that its days were numbered. Um, there was a Change.org petition; over 3,700 people signed it. They protested the demolition. Cleveland Restoration Society Director Kathleen Crowther says it's a serious loss, but she's urging the clinic to fund adjacent historic churches, the East Mount Zion Baptist and Liberty Hill Baptist that surround the the, uh, campus there, but uh, Cleveland Clinic has no comment on that. But this Neurological Institute is part of a $1.3 billion capital plan for Ohio, Florida, and London here in Cleveland. In in addition to the Institute, they will expand the Cole Eye Institute and expand research labs for the Cleveland Innovation District project. All of this is largely funded by philanthropy, and it's said to add 7,500 direct jobs and 2,000 indirect jobs when it's finished.
1: Well, people always wonder, as the Cleveland Clinic goes international and opens offices in places like London, will they reduce their... Investment or presence in Cleveland, and this is an emphatic no that they're going to invest a huge amount of money. It's going to extend their campus in a strong way down Carnegie, closer to. Midtown, it's a it's a big project,
3: and is it an interesting? And uh, this is the second time in a c- couple of weeks we've talked about uh, you know a major hospital system having to destroy historic buildings to, to realize their vision for a future campus. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. And I have to say, you know, I, I came from Houston. They they tear things down without a thought of historical preservation. Their preservation laws are weak. They're so much stronger here in Cleveland. But sometimes you really have to make way for progress.
1: Okay, it's today in Ohio. We talked last week about how police departments are using federal dollars to install surveillance cameras. How does Cleveland's Civilian Police Commission want police here to proceed with such technology? with safeguards for the privacy rights that we discussed, Layla.
0: Well, Cleveland police use cameras for surveillance. They use drones. They use ShotSpotter to pinpoint the location of gunshots. And and as technology advances, there's this concern that facial recognition software is going to sneak into that mix too, right? So so to get ahead of that, the Cleveland Community Police Commission this week or last week recommended in a 48-page report that before the city uses any kind of surveillance equipment, there should be a policy and community discussion on it. That seems reasonable, right? I mean, the commission wants to prevent any surveillance equipment from invading residents' civil rights. It's, it's also recommending that the city disclose to its disclose its use of, of the devices and, and allow residents to give feedback, and it's seeking greater restrictions on search warrants that are obtained through the devices. Uh, Safety Director Kerry Howard uh, last week released a statement that said that the city won't use any equipment that would go beyond state guidelines for surveillance technology, but Gordon Friedman, who's the chairman of the panel's search and Seizure Committee, and and a civil rights attorney says that basically the way it works now, we have the use of technology with no policy around it, and that is a really slippery slope. He's hoping that the city will take the commission's report really seriously, and guess what? Issue 24 means that they kinda have to. (laughs) That you know, the commit that committee will soon have the power to enact policy itself. So it would probably behoove the department to act in good faith now and take a look at that thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I really like this, especially given that, that the whole facial recognition issue came up in a recent council hearing and the police refused to discuss yeah. it, which although it didn't seem in this story, that. Carrie
0: Howard was sort of saying, "Oh, the you know our our cameras are not sophisticated enough to, to uh, to comport with facial recognition technology." But, but that's not what it sounded like in that in that committee yeah. hearing. He was definitely like, no, "Oh, we, we we can't talk about facial recognition. We'll talk about it later, yeah. councilman." Private conversations. Yeah, well,
1: <laughs> and the cameras are getting better and better. So I, I love this idea. I love the idea that civilians will study what is the best policy and it's not going to be runaway police uh, and it'll be done transparently. Right. I think this police commission is going to be one of the best things that ever happened to Cleveland. Uh, and a lot of voters did, too, because they voted in huge numbers. Uh, we'll have to see if the city agrees. What's interesting is, you know, Frank Jackson was dead set against the issue 24, dead set against this police commission deciding what to do. Justin Bibb was the one candidate in the entire race that supported this thing. But now he's got to live with it. So when the commission comes out and says, hey, Justin Bibb, your police department should use this equipment according to these guidelines. He's going to have to embrace it, given that he supported it so strongly mm. as he ran. Yep.
0: I, I mean, why wouldn't he? right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So far, hasn't he been, hasn't he been completely in in line with, uh, with, you know, with the, you know, he's, he's gone to court. He's done, he's done everything he's needed to, to get this commission up and running. So,
1: but that's not specific. That's not doing the specifics. Now you're going to have an issue where the police want to use these cameras a certain way. And the civilian commission is saying, yeah, we don't think that's Right. Justin Bibb's going to be in the middle of that. It'll be interesting to see how he goes. That does it for the Monday Conversation on Today in Ohio. Thanks, Lisa, Layla, and Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back tomorrow to be talking about some more news.